Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. How's everybody doing? Okay. I'm only going to cover the one church. Ephesus, I was going to do two. Uh, Things got a little hectic, and I thought instead of me fretting and trying to put it in, I'm going to just do the one. If it comes up a little bit short in time, we all can go grab a bite to eat afterwards or something. Uh, But let's pray before we get started. Father, we are thankful for the life you've given us. God, I am grateful for this day. I'm grateful for the kids at our house. And even though it is noisy and hectic, I am thankful that they are in our lives and the way you are using them to teach me and help me become uh, more like you, I am, uh, again, grateful. And Lord, I do pray, even as we go through these letters to the various churches, that the things that you were speaking to those churches, you are speaking them still to us. And so may we have ears to hear, may we be tentative to what your voice is saying. And as we read these things, may your spirit be speaking into our lives, Father, to help mature us, to help correct us, to help put us back on track to where we need to be, to reaffirm your love, your grace, your mercy, as well as, Lord, your holiness. All these things, Father, are areas that we need to lean into, we need to learn, and I pray we would. I pray, Lord, that there would be a cleansing of our hearts as we go through this book and as we are here together. There would be a reshaping of how we live, how we think, and how our faith shows up. Thank you again for everyone here, Lord, and bless for your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation, we're in chapter 2, the Revelation to John. Um, We have before us here the reason this book was written. It was written to the church, the church that it's being addressed to here in seven letters are seven cities in Turkey. Uh, Seven, of course, is the number of completion. It it is not just like, oh, there was only seven churches. Again, John the writer here is using this number very intentionally 
because the church is how God is working in the world. It, it is really the culmination of what Christ did. It is to raise up people in his name, which we call the church. And so seven is this number of completion, the kind of number of uh, perfection or wholeness. And so it's very intentional that it's seven. And the seven churches, again, in these areas are dealing with actual churches that are there, but the letters are sharp messages directed specifically to each of the churches in these cities. But the lessons, the promises, the warnings are applicable to all of them and not just one of them. And of course, they're applicable to the church throughout all of history. So when he talks to the church in Ephesus about, you know, the right to eat of the tree of life or to Smyrna about escaping the second death, that's not just for that church in that city. That applies to all the churches, but the messages are being directed specifically. And so we're going to be able to take something from each of these letters that are being written to these churches and understand what is Jesus saying to these different communities and what's happening. The letters have a pattern. They begin with a reminder in some aspect of the description of Jesus that we saw in chapter 1. They, they point us back to the one who is standing in the midst of the seven candle stands. Again, Jesus is not away he is in the midst of the churches, the seven stars that he's holding in his right hand, the messengers, the angels of those churches. He is very actively involved in this. And so it starts with that picture of him because this is where the message is coming from. They continue to congratulate the church on what has been going on well, except for Laodicea. There has, they have nothing to be commended about. And then they warn them about what has been going badly. And only Smyrna and Philadelphia, there's no fault mentioned. But they each end with a solemn warning and a promise. And it's important that, again, we understand that this is something that is given to them and as well as to us. The Spirit is speaking to the churches, calling Christ followers to conquer and promising them the life that he gives. And we're going to look a little bit more on how that shows up in what it means. So starting at verse 1, chapter 2, says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Ephesus was a capital city. It was a very prominent city in the region. It is estimated that it had a population of about a quarter of a million people. And still today, you can go through and there are the ruins, but they have some amazing things. There's this amphitheater that is there, which was huge. So there was a, a large, I don't know, need for something where they would put on these productions for that many people. They had marble streets that are still there. And you could see there were shops and there were homes all along the side that you can kind of still get a little bit of an idea of what those things are. There also was a huge temple central, the Temple of Artemis, which was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. It was something that was very known by the people who lived at that time. It was one of those cities. It would be a major metropolis. Is that the right one? Metropolis. metropolis. I added one more symbol than <laughs> syllable in there. And so it was an incredible thing. It was actually very prominent even as time went on throughout the church history and some of the important councils that were there uh, where they made a lot of decisions even in uh, the New Testament when it was being compiled. There was a council there in 431 AD that was held there in Ephesus, they uh, excavated archaeologically a church that they believe is where that council was actually head, headed or set up. And, and so here is this letter to these churches, and each letter is very poignant in addressing the social environment, the economical environment, the political environment, as well as the spiritual environment of that church in that region, which I think is very important. You know, one of our core foundations is relevance to culture is not optional. And we see that the messages to each of these churches is different in its addressing who they are, where they are, and what is happening within that culture where that church is. And so here in Ephesus... We do have that as well. Now, what is happening is God is speaking to the people who are living in this place to help them understand what they need to know to live a life that is reflective of him there in that city with all the things that are going on in that city. In John sixteen thirteen, it says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak of his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. What is yet to come, he is going to direct you on how you are to live. Okay, He is going to direct us on what we need to know and what we need to do to live in the situations that we find ourselves in. And the Spirit is still speaking to us today, and he's still helping us 
to try and be effective in being examples of Christ to the world here. Bless you in the United States, in Upland, California, in Southern California. If you were in Northern California, it would look different. If you were in Texas, it would look different. If you were in the Philippines, it would look different. But wherever you are, the Spirit of God is speaking to his people how to best reflect who he is where they are. And I think that that's exciting. It's important to know that he is not just giving us this blanket statement, I would just want you to do this. It's like, well, what about where we are and the particular problems that we have? The Spirit will direct us on what we need to know in these areas. In Ephesus, the temple of Artemis, that used to be Diana for the Greeks, was very prominent. They built around this temple. And this is a ruin. I had a picture of the temple, but um, I forgot to bring it. Not the actual uh, idea of what it looked like. And it was just magnificent. And, And around this temple, there were extensive grounds and gardens. And one of these areas that was central to the temple was a particular tree that was used not only as a sacred shrine, but as a focal point of a system of asylum that was established there in that city. The tree was even fashioned into some coins that they had in Ephesus, where you could see in the coin this tree that was there, a part of this temple. And what would happen is criminals who came within a certain distance of this tree would be free from capture and punishment. Crazy, huh? Now, I don't know what happened, where that line was and what happened if they walked out of that line, if then, you know, they'd snag them or whatever. But there was part of their worship where if you were close to this tree, they could not punish you or take you in. Again, I don't know all the details, but that was part of their culture. That is how they saw that. That is one of the things that Ephesus, the city, was known for. It was an asylum for criminals who were trying to escape and to find a place where they could have refuge. And so it's no accident then that the letter finishes with the promise that God too has a paradise. He has a garden. He has a tree. You see, remember, All that is happening here in the book of Revelation is happening under the culture of the Roman Empire that is the oppression, that is the threat, that is the strength of the society at that time. And here is the church in its early stages past that first time where there's the explosion, the excitement, and now the long and artists are... Man, I can't find my words today. The long and strenuous life of living this example of Christ is taking place. And what do we do? Why are we being persecuted and Rome is growing stronger? Maybe we've made the wrong choice. Maybe Rome is right and we're wrong. Here is Ephesus. Here is their tree, their system. And here John is saying, you know, there's a garden that we have too. And it's a lot different than theirs. God's dwelling is not a refuge for unrepented criminals. It is a place where those who repent, in verse 5, and those who conquer, in verse 7, will have the right to eat from the tree 
and so too to obtain the life that comes from that tree. So their tree, anyone could go, anyone could be safe. This isn't the way it is with the tree of life. There has to be a change. There has to be a perseverance. And then the tree that we get to partake of isn't just an asylum from a crime. It is a entry into life. And so, again, John is comparing. This is what they have. This is the promise that awaits for us. And that's what we want to understand and see. The tree of life was there in the original garden, Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to see it again planted many times over in the new Jerusalem in Genesis or Revelation chapter 22. So the tree of life is kind of a central theme that is running from Genesis to Revelation. It is the life that God gives. That's why our symbol of Genesis is a tree. I remember when we were in Mexico one time doing some cement work and they wanted us to put, you know, their name in the cement and they wanted us to make a little design and they wanted a dove, you know, of course. And I said, well, why don't we put a tree, you know, because we're a tree. And they go, well, we want something biblical. And I was like, oh, you know, they were joking. I go, what do you mean? It's in Genesis and it's in Revelation. It is biblical. I just thought it was funny. I teased them about it. Um, and they, we put their dove in there. Uh, the letter to the Ephesians begins with the declaration, again, of the imperial power that is present. It's Jesus. He's the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And we hear that he is delighted with them. We hear that he's delighted that they have worked hard, that they have been patient even under threat and persecution, we see in verse 3. They have drawn clear lines between those who are really following Jesus and those who aren't, in verse 2. In fact, when some people have tried to pass themselves off as apostles, they have seen through them and their discernment is strong in their community. And these are all things that are being commended to them. And they're great things, right? I mean, it's beautiful things to see these things. And when you first hear some of these, you cannot tolerate wicked people. That can seem a little bit mean, right? What do you mean? Aren't we supposed to tolerate wicked people? It means we don't allow their wickedness to affect us. We're not going to allow their wickedness to spread. We're not going to tolerate the wickedness that they are doing to now be accepted into the things that we are doing. And testing those who claim to be apostles, it would seem that early Christians traveled a lot. And it's very likely that as this movement began to spread, like always, people take advantage Right when a, a catastrophic event takes place, whether it's a hurricane or you know nine eleven, and there's devastation, all these people come in to try and take advantage. If you give us this money, we'll be able to build your home back up, and they take the money and they leave, 
and they do that to many homes. And so they go and they collect as much money as they can. They say, we're with an insurance and we need your deductible. They get the money and they leave. And these people who are already in terrible situations now find themselves being taken advantage of. And the same thing was true back then. People were aware of this new way these people following Jesus. And so a church starts in Ephesus. And then here comes a couple of people and they're coming from, you know, another area, another city. And they come and they say, yes, we've just been to, to Jerusalem and, and we were with Jesus and we have a message to bring to you about Christ. We have a revelation from God. And so then how do we know? Maybe they were. We've been here in Ephesus. We weren't there in Jerusalem. We don't know what's going on. Maybe these travelers are actually apostles. Because what did you get to make a phone call? Hey, Peter, do you know this guy named, you know, you're not going to be able to find out who it is. And so you have to hear them and find out, does that sound right? Or are they trying to take advantage of us? Are they trying to get money from us? Are they trying to get, you know, our hospitality and take advantage of these things? And so it could be a tricky thing trying to hear out somebody, be hospitable to them, and then find out if they're a fraud or not. Right? You ever do that with someone who comes up to you with a need? And they tell you it happens all the time, people who are homeless, right? They'll say, hey, can you help me? I need money for the bus or for gas for my car. And, you know, I always hear those kinds of stories. It's always I need to get on the bus. I need money for the car. I need to get here. I need to go see my family, and I just need money to get over there. And how many times do you, like, is that really true? Or are you just saying that because you want some money and you're going to go buy something else? And how do I know? right? And I used to be all into that. I used to try and trick people to try and find out their, their lies. I did. Remember, do you remember that, Mary? You were, I think, in the office one time and I was there and some guy came in. And I was like hell-bent on trying to find out that he's wrong. I don't know why. Now I just say no. Um, I don't give money. Away, but I, I still want to know who they are and trying to help. The other day, we had a guy who was out here, and we were having a party with some kids, and he was out here drinking. And so I was like, ah. I went outside and said, "Hey, buddy, what's your name?" He told me his name. I said, "Hi, my name is here." I say, "You can't stay here and drink. You know, you, you can't. You're going to get in trouble if you do." And said, "Okay, you know." And it went well. I told my son, "Hey, watch my back in case it doesn't." Right. But it went well, and, you know, he ended up leaving. I got his name. If I see him again, I'll ask him how he's doing. And I can help him get to, you know, IVRS or into a program AA or somewhere where he, if he wants to get help, he can. But I've kind of taken on that policy. I'm not going to just give money away because of my experience with the people I know and love, how that has hindered the rehabilitation process, Right. And so in their case, they're trying to find out, do we support these people? Do we listen to these people? And they were good about discerning. They were good in finding out you're not who you say you are, and so we're not going to tolerate this. And they would have them just leave because of that. But 
something happened in this church. Something happened to them. They had left or abandoned their first love, which they had at the beginning in verse 4. And one of the things I I want to be aware of in, in the things that Jesus says to this church where he rebukes them, there is nothing that's done that is really pushing them away. Everything he says is there to pull them closer. He starts off with the compliment and recognizing the good that's there. And when he brings this about, it isn't because, hey, I'm really upset with you and I'm really mad at you. And he talks to them about, you know, repenting, because if you don't, then he's going to remove your lampstand from its place. I used to always think, oh, remove the lampstand and you go to hell. But there's really no indication that that's the case. The indication is that the church that is there will cease to be effective and cease to be. And there is no church there in Ephesus. It's more of a tourist kind of a place. But it's not like, hey, I'm going to send you to hell if you miss things and, and misinterpret what I'm supposed to, you're supposed to do. That's not the case. It's not that kind of thing. It's really, if you stop this, if you don't turn around, then what I'm doing here is going to stop. And that's a, a frightening thing, right? That's a terrible thing. That the church would cease to be what they were in that city because they were well-known. And they were well-known for decades. How terrible it would be that if, if you don't change how you're doing things, you're just going to stop representing me and you're going to cease to be there and in effect in that city. And I think that was enough for them. There was no like, oh, you're going to go to hell. I, I, that wasn't part of that conversation. It was like, you're not going to be here in this city doing the work that I'm doing because you have removed yourself from it. And that seemed to be enough of a deterrent for them to want to move away from that. And and so when he says that they had left or abandoned their first love, again, they didn't lose it. They just had abandoned what they were doing to, to do the things that they had done at the beginning. This might refer to their love for Jesus himself, and certainly that always has to be kept firm and central. But there is clearly a matter of things people actually do, right? Repent says, do the works you did at the beginning. Love in the early Christian sense is something you do. Giving hospitality, practical help to those in need, practical uh, care for those, especially other Christians who are poor, sick, or hungry. This is evidence of love. And it's very easy to lose that. It, it was the chief mark of the early church. No other non-ethnic group had ever behaved like this. The church had become so prominent in their caring for people that the Roman government started making edicts for their own government to start behaving like the church. 
because they saw that the church was winning people and we need to start doing these things so that we too can win people. Otherwise, they're all going to start becoming Christians. And of course, it failed because this was motivated by the love of Christ and the other was just motivated by mandate. And you can't mandate love. I remember when I first became a follower of Christ, it was after my mom, right? My mom had become a follower of Christ and she was just annoying the heck out of me. She was just like being so nice and she was so loving and so patient and it just was bothering me. I was like, okay, yeah, you and your Christian, okay, yeah, everything's love. And I remember thinking, I, I'll be nice and loving too. And so I was going to just start pretending like, oh, yes, mom, I'll do anything you say. And it didn't last long, right? I was like, okay, forget this. I'm not going to go through with this. And, and it it was interesting, looking back, there was something that had happened in her that caused this change to take place in her, and I saw it, and it bothered me. And I saw a change for the good in her, and I thought, well, I don't need this Jesus to have a change for good. I can just act good. But it wasn't the same. And the same thing is true here. It wasn't the same. This love that they had been doing had marked society in a powerful way, and if they abandoned what they were doing, that mark would start to dissipate. And so I have to think about my own life. What are the things that I have abandoned? What are the areas in my life, in my relationship with Christ, that I have left, that I have neglected? Right? We all have times where we can remember a fondness that we had or an affection or a passion for Christ. And it changes throughout the year. Change is good. It has to grow. It has to mature. But I think the key is, is it growing? Is my love for Christ growing or is it getting cold? Well, I know all about Jesus now. Oh, I know all about this, and I know all about that. And so I have enough information about these things that I can live with these, this awareness. But there's no growth. There's no real interaction. I'm going on the fumes of what I've learned and lived in the past. And so, and it's not like we always have to be learning new things, right? It's easy to slip and fall back into a... a Comfortable lifestyle, self-preservation, uh, our mode of operation that puts our needs before others, our comforts before others. They had to wake up to these things, and sometimes we do too. I don't need to really pray or, or seek after God. I don't really need to learn about Christ, because I've been through the Bible a few times. I don't really need to push into these things. And... We have to be careful of those things. And it's not that we can't ever learn things or that God isn't doing new things. I think he's always doing new things and wanting the church to learn how to be effective in the culture that we're at. I just think there's a laziness that comes into life. And, and it happens in relationships and it happens in our relationship with God where we get too comfortable and we stop doing the things that we did at the beginning. And sometimes it's good to just go back and, and 
think, what are the things that I did? Why did I stop? Did they replace with something better? Right? Am I growing at least further? Or am I just settling? And so it's a sobering comment. And exactly what it meant, I think it means something to each of us. We hear that, and I always think of a million things, right? I think of, oh, man, those words always strike me. That love, I've got to act, I've got to do, I've got to grow. If not, then I'm in a bad place. I need to turn back towards that. I need to repent if I'm not living that. I have to make that change, right? And that's what I need. And then he talks about, you know, but hey, you did this other good thing. You hated, right, the Nicolaitans. Um, You have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Who are the Nicolaitans? We don't know. Um, But he hated what they were doing. Two thoughts. One is it was named after a guy named Nicholas who had become an apostate. The other is it's after a Greek word named Nikolai, which meant to eat, and it had to do with uh, idolatry, worship of idols. But those are just speculations. We don't know what it is. Um, But what we do know is that they this practice was tainting the message and character of Christ. And so they hated that, right? They hated what was happening. Um, and that they have to maintain this identity of who Jesus is. Anything that will challenge that needs to be dealt with. Anything that challenges the character of Christ has to be addressed. And that's why the people who are walking with Christ, who are in love and following in love and practice of Christ, they're the ones who are setting the example, not these people who were setting some other example, who were taking the worship of the God who loves, cares, and does someplace else. And we need to be careful that that's not the case. And again, this isn't narrowing the view that you can only do these few things and anyone who does anything else outside of these few things is on the outs. It is actually making the view very open to whoever acts this way is in, but whoever tries to take away from the behavior and attitude and character of Christ, well, then that needs to be stopped. Corrine read a verse today that Ben sent her, Uh, From Mark chapter 9, verse 40 and 41, Jesus says, For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Wow, that's kind of a real open statement, isn't it? Whoever does something kind will be rewarded. If they do something kind to one of God's people, they're going to be rewarded. Why? This is in the character of Christ, right? And so the idea of the Nicolaitans isn't that they have to believe the stringent rules and regulations. It's they have to live the right way. They have to hold on to the character of Christ, 
the one who cares for them, again, this is connected to their love that they need to return to, you guys are doing this. So it's almost like you're not far from where you need to be, but you need to start doing some of these other things. Oh, you, you did this. That's good. You're not going down that path, but you need to get more along on this path. And then, again, he goes on and he says, Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There is this connection to life to all of the churches. Um, It shows up in different ways. Here it's to the tree of life, and we'll see how it shows up in the other churches. But there is this promise of this life that God has given at the end of each letter to the churches. And, And why do the letters emphasize the importance of conquering, right? This idea of conquering. <clears throat> Putting together all the references in the book, we get a clear answer. The main challenge of the young church's face is the threat of pagan persecution. Indeed, these seven letters seem to be written as part of the Lord's preparation um, that something bad is coming. That things are going to get a lot more difficult and you need to be victorious and the victory that you have to endure or what you have to do to endure to be victorious is go through this intense persecution and gosh you know thinking about that um how would you feel if You've got this word of encouragement that, hey, man, you need to steadfast if you're going to be victorious because it's going to get really bad. Would you be like, oh, no, what can I do to stop it? Can I move to Switzerland or something where it's not as bad? You know, um, I, I think, again, we have such a different mindset living in our country having the freedoms that we have and that we've had for so long, the idea of this kind of persecution is really not a part of our mindset. And anytime I hear pastors saying, oh, the persecution is coming, it's just around the corner, I really kind of chuckle. Not because I don't think it can't happen, but because I think it's not happening. I think it's a long way off from what they were dealing with. And so we talk about, oh, no, they're not letting us take Bibles to school. And, oh, no, they didn't let, you know, a a Bible study at a house happen because there was too many cars parked and they complained. And so now they can't, oh, we're being persecuted. It's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. Oh, they're going to pass this law and now, you know, Pastors aren't going to be able to say and do these things. Again, we're not talking at all the same. We're not talking at all the same. The persecution that they were dealing with was life and death. And so knowing that things are going to get worse, is this enough to help you understand that you have to persevere in order to conquer? 
that you have to endure the cross for there to be a resurrection. That you have to go through this so that you can come out of this shining and like gold. Is that enough? Or do you need something more? Because the whole book is about what is dominating how we live. It's all about what is your goal. Where is your garden? What is your idea of power? What is your idea of the right kingdom? And this is the path to Christ's kingdom. It is loving, it is caring, and it is being persecuted when you do so, but still doing so anyway. It's not by fighting back, but by following Jesus himself, who won the victory through his own patient suffering. Some in these churches will suffer, some will die. All have to bear witness to Jesus. And that's how they conquer the evil forces that surrounded and threatened them. And that's what happened. We can look back and see the church suffered intense persecution, did not give up, and ended up flourishing. So what are the persecutions in our life? This is the question I'm asking myself after going through this. It's really a whole different cultural aspect, right? My body is not being endangered. No one's going to come storming in this room with guns and say, who believes in Jesus? If you do, leave. None of those things are happening. So what are the areas that I need to repent and turn towards? What are the areas that I need to maybe suffer through? Maybe it is with people who really irk me and being patient with them and showing gratitude towards them. Maybe it is taking on more of a minimalist attitude in life instead of getting the things that I want. I still have an Amazon addiction, right? I still get these little things now and then. It's just like, why did I get this? You know, I, I needed it and I didn't, you know. I've got this cool little thing that cleans the screen of my tablet and my phone. It, it's so cool. It, it is just amazing. And I, I'm, I, I'm so glad I have it now. Every time I use it, I think, why did I get that? Why did I get that? I did not need that. And, you know, maybe I need to start thinking a little bit differently if I want to be more effective in how I can present Christ to people and even in our church. And, and so those are the questions that I ask myself, and I hope through this letter to this church you will ask some of those questions to yourself. And remember that it's here to push you in the right direction. It's here to, to turn you around if you're going in the wrong direction and help you make the changes that need to be changed. To, to return to that place, that first love, that passion, doing the things that are like Christ. 
because he is our goal. He's in the midst of the church. He's standing there. And if we suffer and go through whatever it is we have to suffer and go through, endure those things, then there's something more than the garden that they had in Ephesus. There is the tree of life that we are going to partake of. That is our inheritance. Any thoughts or questions? You don't know. I mean, you kind of have to trust your judgment at that point. And then, again, it, it, you have to kind of know or try and distinct, discern the character of the people. And that could be a hard thing sometimes. Um, you know, I know it, it is a struggle. Again, with the people I know who were homeless, um, every time they got money, um, they used it towards drugs. And if you bought them food, that was money they didn't have to spend to get food that they could spend mm -hmm. to get drugs. Yeah. You know, um, so... You know, and because they could get food. There was a lot of places where they could get food. It wasn't good. And sometimes it was difficult. Um, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't feed people. Um, it, it's just a very tricky thing, you know, because what do you want? I want them to be better. I want them to get better. But that takes a lot. With the people we love, it took a lot. Well, Upland's cracking down a lot on the homeless right now. We went to the Angel Game the other day, yesterday, Monday, 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 yeah, Monday, gosh, yeah, and, you know, all along the wash there, there used to be just like a city of homeless, and they're gone now, I shouldn't say they're gone, they're somewhere else now, right, but the city put a crackdown on it, because, you know, it was, it was bad, it was turning into a dangerous thing, but they didn't disappear, yeah. you know, they went somewhere, and, and so, that's a sad thing. I mean, that's why I liked what the old chief of police was doing. He was at least trying to help and was making a difference. And Eric and some of the people are still, I think, making a difference. Um, but it, it takes a lot of work, and it's never enough. Any other thoughts on this chapter or questions or things that stood out to you guys? No? All right. Let's pray. Father, again, I am grateful for the challenges in these letters that apply to us, and I pray, God, that you would help us to take stock and examine our hearts and see what applies to us. And Father, as we continue moving through these letters and through these books, um, God, I, I think and I hope that we will see how important it is to have a faith that is connected to a God who loves sacrificially and conquers by loving. Um, may that continue to be our example. And may we see the contrast between the power of Rome and the power of Christ and how, Lord, you use that contrast to motivate us in the right ways and i pray we would be in jesus name amen you have been listening to the genesis podcast we invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings 
You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.